and another class in the bunker is off and running. Um, hope everybody's had a uh, good week. Spring is coming, and uh, we have another really good class today, and I think in some ways this may be one of the more important classes uh, that we've ever done along the way. Um, important question uh, to start off with. Um, I have a birthright. To do what? And we're going to find that that ties in a lot to uh, the question that I asked uh, online, and that is, who is it that goes to heaven and how exactly does that work? Uh, we're going to try and answer that question today and then get a good uh, idea about maybe who is a good uh, role model for that. So uh, again, join us on the journey. Make sure when you're watching this that you, you hit us with a like and uh, let us know exactly where you're coming from. It gives us a chance to know what regions are, uh, we're kind of reaching out to. So, Okay, so as we get started today, uh, when we think about uh, things like birthright, I think it's easy for us to compare it like getting an inheritance, you know. And so the question with an inheritance is, what stuff do I get? Do I get the big stuff, the little stuff? I, I want to know what stuff I get. And, and when we take a look at birthright, we're talking about the fact that, that that was the same thing, especially when we start getting into ancient Near East, that birthright was a big deal. And, and probably in another class, we're going to talk about the fact that uh, the birthright son in, in, among the Old Testament patriarchs, the, the birthright never went to the oldest son. It was supposed to, and it never went. Somehow they abdicated. Somehow it's always going to the younger son. And we have a lot of angry older sons who were without the birthright or angry they didn't get it. Now, why is the birthright, birthright a big deal? Well, as we're talking about this, uh, I want to, first of all, begin to take a look at the idea of birthright as a responsibility. We, we know, and I think we hear it every time it comes up in gospel doctrine, what does the birthright mean? And they say, well, the, the birthright son has a double portion meaning that they're supposed to take the double portion, take care of their mom, take care of their unwed uh, sisters, and uh, are responsible for dad's business. But it really means I get double the stuff over my younger brothers. In reality, the birthright was more responsibility than it was stuff. Because that birthright responsibility means that there are responsibilities, things that I have to be accountable for because I am now taking over as the oldest son, I'm taking over dad's uh, set of things and that means I have to be responsible for the things that dad was responsible for. All of those ro responsibilities roll onto my shoulders. Things like what? Not just taking care of mom, not just taking care of uh, unwed sisters, but the land, the business, uh, the responsibility that I have for how my how I contribute to the village, how how I contribute to my tribe, to my people. Uh, my dad had responsibilities within all of this village and to his family, even in inheriting things from his father. So I've got responsibility to past generations and to future generations. Birthright responsibilities were just that, obligations and responsibilities. 
and that's a lot to get on there. Far beyond the fact that I just get double the stuff. So we have to think in terms of birthright obligations. Now, when we, when we take a look at those kind of things, um, we also have birthright responsibilities, not just birthright stuff. Only we say it differently in, in different parlance. We're saying, in reality, when we talk about being born under the covenant, were you born under the covenant? Was she born under the covenant? We're born under the covenant. We're really saying that we have been born under covenant responsibilities, meaning that to shoulder the covenant is to, is to shoulder birthright responsibilities, meaning that I am born into a situation where by my birth into this lineage, I'm supposed to take on certain responsibilities. I remember uh, a good friend of mine who was a patriarch uh, for years, and he used to say as he would give patriarchal blessings to different, and, and people would have different tribes in their lineage, and he'd say, because everybody is, inter they all intermingled in Egypt, he says everybody has, the has all 12 tribes in them. He says, really, when I declare a patriarchal blessing, I'm declaring what responsibility, what tribe you're responsible to. And, and, what kind, and so he says, you need to figure out what are the duties of that tribe. When it, with Ephraim, we say, well, it isn't just because I'm an Ephraimite, then I get all of the goodies that come to an Ephraimite. He's saying, no, 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 no. If you're born under Ephraim responsibility, you have to do the things that Ephraim is responsible for. And that is the carrying forth of the gospel and, uh, and leadership and those kinds of, of things. So being born under the covenant is kind of an important kind of thing. Now, this also includes, because what if, if you're sitting here what, saying, uh, I joined the church later, I wasn't born under the covenant. Well, the reality is this covenant birthright also goes to those who have been born again to a new birth and also they become heirs to that birthright. All the blessings and responsibilities and obligations of the heirs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fall onto you as a, when you get the new birth. So we have those responsibilities. But I want to sharpen that just a little bit more, and I think that's the essence of why I think today is kind of an important class uh, for us to take a look at. What responsibilities? Because again, think about it, say, say birthright responsibilities. Oh, land, uh, priesthood, uh, posterity, you're getting stuff. What is the covenant birthright responsibility though what are we supposed to do? What is the Lord going to hold us accountable to? Okay? Well, in order to answer that, let me ask one other question, and then we'll tie it together. So, so stay with me on this. Because I think there's another really important question. And that is, who gets to heaven? Exactly who is it? You know, I... 
I remember as a missionary, you know, one of those questions that would come to us a lot would be, well, do only Mormons go to heaven, or do you get to go to a Mormon heaven, or uh, who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't? And certainly that was a worry among uh, the Book of Mormon people in early on in their gospel knowledge that there would be a judgment day and a moment when the gavel would fall and you'd find out if you succeeded or failed. Are you going to go to heaven or are you going to go to hell? Are you going to sit in celestial glory or everlasting burnings? Kind of a scary thought. So, the, so for them, the idea of going to heaven was also, how do I make sure that I don't fry in, in, in flames uh, later on? And have I done enough? Have I ticked enough boxes to get me there? Well, I want to change our thinking a little bit on this because I think we are off base a bit when we get caught up in the idea of who goes to heaven and who doesn't. Because um, what we know about heaven is that heaven belongs to those who can abide his glory. Section 76 tells us. That is, those that are comfortable in his presence. Imagine if, think about coming out of a dark theater where you've been watching a movie or something and you walk into the bright light and you can't abide the light because you're not used to it, okay? Well, first, one thing we know about those that would go to heaven means that they're going to live with our heavenly parents, and they would have to be able to abide the glory of that place. So who can do that? Who can live? If, if heaven, celestial glory is about living with God, then we have to abide the glory. And interestingly enough, John tells us, Beloved, now we are sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. You, you're not quite there yet. But he says, but when he shall appear, we shall be like him. So if we say that just a little bit differently, who goes to heaven? It's a very simple answer. Those who are like him. Now, this is the point sometimes when we get caught up in some of our LDS nomenclature and we're saying, well, obviously it's those who have had the temple blessings and they've been baptized and all, they have to have the necessary ordinances and things like that. Well, we're assured uh, and, and prophets have taught long that the blessings of the gospel, the blessings of baptism and temple blessings will be offered to every person who has ever lived on the face of the earth. Everybody will have that opportunity to obtain those ordinances of the temple. It'll be up to them to accept it. But, let's, but being, given the fact that everybody will have it, let's set that over here for just a second and ask again, who goes to heaven? Who goes to the celestial kingdom? And the very, very simple answer is those that are like him, those that have become like him. And, and that's, that, in essence, that's what the Savior wrought in the atonement was that it wasn't something that we received a long time ago. It's, a, it's an ongoing process that transforms us and changes us and he works with us until we are like him and can abide and live with him. Those that are in heaven are those that are like him.
Now, so heaven, the celestial kingdom, will consist of those that will become like our heavenly parents. So if you think about it more in terms of that covenant path that President Nelson talks about, the question is not whether we made it or not. The question is, where are we on the path? Are we lagging behind? Are we moving ahead? Um, where are we in, the, in our journey towards becoming like him? Perhaps sometimes it's two steps back and one step forward, and sometimes we're, again, lagging behind, and then other times we're moving ahead. And we begin to see that this journey is not about a single judgment moment where we find out if we pass or failed. This journey is about where are we along the way. And if we're going to take the fact, if we look at everybody who's ever lived, and even ourselves, and say, this journey doesn't end until we're in their presence. And and Jesus has stated as his uh, never-ending goal to bring his brothers and sisters, to bring his sons and daughters home. And anytime somebody asks about, what about my relative or somebody else or my neighbor that, that doesn't seem to get it? My answer is always one that uh, Patrick Mason, I think, is, l- likes to use. It says, if I give Jesus a million years with that person, who do you think wins? The Savior says, I stand at the door and knock. It's not like he stands at the door and knock and leaves the UPS atonement package and leaves. He says, no, this process of, make, of, of reconciliation that we're going to talk about here is you open the door, you let me in, and we work together until I get you home. And I do not flag in my efforts until you're back with me and with our parents. Now, if we, if we keep that idea in mind, then, then let's look, ask another question. And again, we, about those saving ordinances. Yes, along the way, the saving ordinances, the blessings of the temple, will be given. They will be offered, and as, if somebody's somewhere along the covenant path, they will see the blessings and opportunities inherent in those ordinances. Because now, or in the millennium, the blessing of the temple will be extended to all God's children. So, let me ask again. What is the covenant birthright responsibility of believers? If you have the birthright, if you have the covenant, what is your job? What does the Lord expect of you? Here's the amazing answer to that. Our job as covenant people is no more and no less than reconciling the entire fallen mortality back to our heavenly parents. Period. Our job is to bring them all home. Meaning our job is to help them become like Christ. And again, remember, before the word uh, um, atonement was used in ancient texts, the, 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 the word before that 
was reconciliation. That's, that is the term of this journey, this rec- relationship that brings us back into eternal glory and back into their presence. So our job is to reconcile the world. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> what a small little job that is. Just reconcile the world. Help them become like God. Now, how do we do that? Well, that's going to be through kindness, service, and love unfeigned. Now, let let, let me give you an example of this, I think. Uh, I have uh, a friend of mine that during uh, the, the very, very cold snap that Texas just had, where we got down to temperatures of 15 below zero uh, and we had rolling blackouts that were uh, not just leaving houses dark but also uh, uh, because of the rolling blackouts so many pipes froze and then broke Uh, so in the midst of all of that and the power going down for days I had a good friend of mine that uh, she lives in a small apartment and for three days, she had no power, she had no heat, she had no light, she had no water, and she was scared to death. She's originally from another country, and she sat in this small, dark appoint, uh, apartment of hers with single-digit temperatures, and in, in, in very many ways, her, her health was threatened as she tried to just sit there and sit this out and hope that it would end. Scared though, she didn't contact anybody. Now, in the midst of all of this, if I had said to her, God loves you, and Jesus has your back, and Jesus is going to bring you home, and uh, you're a a daughter of God, she would say, I know. Uh, I know that. I have a strong testimony of the church. And I'm dying. I'm freezing. Uh, I'm risking hypothermia here. I'm, I'm in real trouble. In the middle of all that came a call from a friend of hers, non-member from work, who just thought she would check to see how my friend was doing. When she learned how much my friend was suffering and in very real danger, she immediately drove over, dragged her into her car, and took her home, where they had power, where they had heat, where they could feed her, where they could kind of nurse her back to health and calm her fears. She was very much shaken by the whole thing. At that moment, the most Christ-like thing happened to my friend was not somebody bearing a testimony. The most Christ-like thing that they did was do what Christ would have done, which is go rescue her and bring her to safety, bring her home. If we look at that covenant path that we're talking about, someone like my friend's rescuer might find herself farther along the covenant path because of the person that she is and the things that she is doing and the changes that she's making in her life to recognize the suffering of somebody else and love them and take care of them, dropping everything else to do that. 
that's the kind of person that somewhere along this path towards the celestial kingdom if the gospel is presented well or Jesus has a million years to work with somebody like that rescuer they're mostly converted right now there's very little information they probably need to recognize the beauty and glory of that and to come home so I don't worry about the saving ordinances with somebody like that she's probably way beyond me and her growth that is what we offer to the world we are to be an example of this kind of loving service uh, to those around us okay so for instance so we have to ask ourselves what about those who have not yet joined the church are they of the birthright blessings do they have the covenant responsibilities well as someone begins to get closer to Christ in the way that they act and in the way that they love and the way that they take care of one another, they partake of the, God, the light of Christ, which leads them away and leads them to be more kind. And, and so in a case like that, the better question is not, did they get baptized or not? Well, it's too bad they haven't gotten baptized because, you know, the better question we should be asking about where somebody is let's just simply ask how Christ like are they let's find out the things that they do in their life let's talk to people around them how do people respond to them are there people that would say oh him he makes me better you can't believe what a, a loving guy she, he is she blesses everybody around her and you see Christ like people in all faiths and in all walks of life and they get it and they're moving and they're transforming though they do not have all of the understanding of what they're doing they're just doing it because they are sons and daughters of God and they are responding to the divinity within them and they're responding to the divinity that they sense and they respond with a sense of love and satisfaction and peace when they're doing those kind of things even if they've never yet been baptized or know nothing about a temple so through their love and their actions how do they impact those around them do they find somebody freezing in an apartment and get in a car and go bring them to safety and to warmth and do it unselfishly almost without thinking they're moving along that birthright responsibility to bring people to peace and Christ again even if their complete knowledge is not there now here's the challenge also for us we're the covenant people we have the truth okay could people like this help us be reconciled to Christ through their example of love and kindness what do they have to teach us what does a mother Teresa like responding to the needs around them show us of the covenant that we need to work on that we need to be better at and inspire us and lift us 
and they become the teachers because of where they are in the path and that process of being reconciled to Christ the beautiful thing is brothers and sisters we're not limited to people within the church where there are people around us every day who can teach us about Christ and we can see uh, divine actions and behaviors and transformations that uh, people that are reconciling and becoming more like Christ again though they may not know it at all now again even without their knowing they are partaking of the birthright of reconciliation and feel joy in that so let me give you a little bit more of an extreme example and then one example from the scriptures and, and we'll be done Okay? what about these guys if, if you go to a 12 step meeting we get people you know alcoholics anonymous and here are addicts and we know for sure that, that addictions ravage individuals and families and, and disrupt potential and lives. And, and that I can track four generations of what happens to the, fa- the next three generations of family after they've, been, uh, they've had to deal with an alcoholic. So the amount of pain and suffering that has happened in the wake of addictions is immense and powerful. And yet every day, here are very flawed individuals who are going to sit in an AA meeting or an ARP in the church and they're going to say very simply, I need to let go and let God. I need to trust in a higher power because I am powerless to stop what I'm doing. I need help. I know that I've hurt people. I know that I've hurt myself. I need help. And you see them take a little step in that journey towards saying, I want to be free of this and, and I can't do it on my own. I need to be reconciled to a higher power. And as they do so, they sponsor one another and help each other in the journey. How Christ-like is that? Brother, you call me at any time, man. You feel like you're going to drink? Give me a shout. Uh, I'll talk you through it. I'm going to sacrifice my time tonight so I can help you so I can get you to a better place. It's not about barren testimony. Hey, uh, God is real. It's what do we need to do to help you get through tonight so you don't drink. And And it's its most basic service level is those that are reconciling, those that are changing, those that are transforming. Now, in the time that we've got remaining, I want to give uh, one. I think one of, one of the really one of my favorite examples from all of the scriptures of this reconciliation process and what it looks like. Um, and it's it's a familiar story, so I'm not going to hit all of the pieces on this. But I wanted to kind of jump over the top and and just kind of hit the main part of this because we know this story. We do it every four years in gospel doctrine. Good, come on. Okay, now, now. It came to pass that when Joseph came to his brethren, remember young Joseph, he's 17, he gets a, a tunic, of a covenant tunic. Somehow the King James translators made it a coat of many colors. It was an undergarment tunic with long sleeves. Uh, 
and 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 Hugh Nibley and other scholars have a lot to say about this covenant tunic, but it was enough to say here's here's the birthright, and it's going to exist with Joseph. And when the brothers see him, they took him and cast him in a pit. He had this obnoxious pattern of going, hey, I've had a vision, and turns out you guys are all going to bow down to me. Isn't that weird? <laughs> you know, he's a little bit like Nephi in the fact that he's being a bit obnoxious and uh, not necessarily recognizing how how his brothers might take his, uh, uh, that's kind of cool you're going to be a servant to me. Wow, who knew? <laughs> okay. They took him, they cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There's no water in it. They're not trying to drown him. They just threw him in a pit. They're angry at him. They don't know what they're going to do. Okay. They sat down to eat bread. They're going to have a meal while we figure out what to do with our obnoxious little brother. And they lifted up their eyes and they looked, and a, couple of, a company of Ishmaelites, uh, Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels. Hey, and Judah... Because Reuben is gone for whatever reason. We don't know where he went. So Judah steps up and he says, Hey, what profit is there if we just slay our brother and conceal his blood? Let's sell him to these guys. We can make, we can make some money off of this. Okay. So Judah kind of leads the charge and says, Well, we don't have to kill him, but we can certainly make some money here. So they do. Come, let us sell him, and, and then our hand won't be upon him, for he's our brother and our flesh, and his brethren were content. Oh, great idea. Let's do that. But Judah also knew that there would be a moment when now we're going to have to send, we're going to have to tell Dad. And so they, 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 they handle this in a really weak sort of way, <laughs> and just saying they're going to take the coat, they're going to tear it in half, they're going to dip some of it in, in a goat's blood and then send it with a servant and, and to, that's going to say to uh, Jacob, is, it, is this your son's coat? Um, and and uh, Jacob will obviously assume that his son has been killed, his birthright son. Now, we know, we know what happens then. We know the story of Joseph in Egypt and... Uh, and everything that will go there and then the, the, the drought and they save up the grain and he becomes like second in charge in, in Egypt and the drought is hitting uh, Jacob's family as well and he sends the boys into Egypt and Joseph recognizes it but doesn't want to say anything yet because there's a horrible amount of guilt that he believes is going to exist with these, with these uh, brothers. And you remember the part, they're going to kind of go back and forth and finally he will put the silver cup in Benjamin's bag and then he says, okay, and then he sends the servants out to find the bag and bring him back. You guys stole from me. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And his, Joseph makes this agreement with him that says, okay, look, I'll just hang on to the one guy that stole from me. The rest of you can go free. Well, he deliberately put it in Benjamin's bag. Now, go all the way back to Judah having to live with the grief, watching the grief and pain of his father who thought he had lost Joseph. And now they're going to have to return back again without Benjamin. And he's going to have to see the grief in his father's eyes again.
one of the great turnaround moments when Judah himself steps up and says to Joseph that he does not yet recognize. If we do this, and Jacob, my father, sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. And thy servant shall bring down the gray hairs of our father with sorrow to the grave. This is going to kill him. We're going to have to bury our dad. For I, have, I know of a surety that if I bring this lad unto the father, and I don't bring this, I will bear this blame forever. I will have to keep in mind the shame that I brought on my dad. Now therefore I pray thee, let me abide instead of the lad. I will be a servant to you and let the lad go up with the brethren back to my dad. And then the classic statement. For how shall I go up to my father and the lad be not with me? I've done that once before. Lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come on my father. Now you see at the end of this why Joseph handled it the way that he did. He gave Judah especially a chance to find reconciliation with his God with his dad after the horrible thing that they had done. And we get this. And Joseph wept aloud. And, and we're told that it's so loud uh, that the Egyptians can hear it all over the place. And Joseph then said unto his brethren, and picture this moment. Don't you want to see this millennial moment? <laughs> Watch the video of this moment in the millennium. It's like, I want to see the past. I want to see this one. This is one of those I really want to see. Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father live? Now, translators tell me that this word father, doth my father yet live? That it has that is very closely linked to a New Testament word, which is Abba, Daddy, Papa. What Joseph is really saying is, "I am Joseph. Is Dad alive?" And you would guess his brethren could not answer him for they were troubled by his presence. That is the understatement of the Old Testament. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near me, I pray you. And they said, he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt, but therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. That great moment of reconciliation, especially as Judah is still standing there who just offered himself to be a servant rather than send the, go back without Benjamin and possibly put his father in the grave. That great moment of reconciliation is so powerful.
because it it uh, required an incredible amount of love and forgiveness on Joseph's part insight as to what his brothers needed to not have to carry the shame and guilt that they were carrying around and it demonstrated the Christ figure that Joseph really was because we get a similar thing almost in section 45 in the Doctrine and Covenants that talks about how that moment when Jesus will stand on the Mount of Olives and they'll, and they'll say you, our Messiah has come back who are you and he will say I am Jesus whom you crucified that's the same has the same power here of I am Joseph that you sold into Egypt but he comes not with vengeance not with anger not with a desire to punish there's no punishment here just love and thrilled to be reconciled this is the doctrine of reconciliation that God is looking for with us regardless of what we have done can we be reconciled no matter how bad it's been can we come back together he just wants us home and it's, it's that desire that should drive us to want other of his children to come home. We are of the birthright of the reconciliation. It is our job to reconcile a fallen world to their heavenly parents. But it's our, also our job to watch people in all walks of life who can teach us about what that looks like and to be blessed by them as we also bless them so that we can be reconciled with them as well. Brothers and sisters, it is my testimony that the Lord wants us home and reconciled and that there are many, many, many voices around us that can show us how that's done. Can we be the ones that rescue out of a cold apartment those that need what they need? and demonstrate exactly what he would do in the same situation. I bear you my testimony that it's true. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.